Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you with me here as always today. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, some, some breaking news, and I'll be giving you updates as they come in. Uh, a suspected suicide bomber in Brussels uh, blew himself up at the central station in Brussels, the capital of Belgium. Uh, earlier today, there were shots fired, and it is believed that uh, police and counterterrorism forces neutralized a suspect who was threatening civilians with what has been described as either a rucksack or a vest with explosives in it. Uh, still getting more information on this. And there are reports that he yelled Allahu Akbar before triggering uh, those explosives. Uh, I've not seen any word yet about casualties, but we have seen uh, we, there's footage out there on the Internet of people claiming to have been present for this and uh, running away uh, in fear, obviously, at the uh, horrific scene. So um, this is something we'll continue to watch. Um, but there are no other casualties, as I said, reported. And police have said the situation right now is under control as of the last report that I've seen. So, you know, this is another one of these incidents, right? You had the guy with a car full of explosives, an AK-47, a handgun, or handguns, I believe. I think it was plural, runs his car into a police van on the uh, on the Champs-Élysées and the police neutralized this guy. But if he hadn't chosen that as his first uh, tactical maneuver, running his vehicle into a larger, heavier vehicle, he could have killed who knows how many people in broad daylight in the most famous street of Paris. He was a a known jihadist, right? Known to the security service in Paris. This just happened in the last 48 hours. And now today in Brussels, you've got a guy blowing himself up in the train station. Now, it wasn't long ago. It was almost uh, exactly a year ago when there were a series of suicide bombings in Brussels and uh, at the Brussels Malbec, which is a known extremist, uh, a known area frequented by extremists, as well as a lot of people who obviously aren't extremists, but there's uh, connections, jihadist connections into the neighborhood. Um, Malbec Station and the airport blew, blew themselves up. Suicide bombers blew themselves up, uh, killing 32 people and uh, injuring 300. Uh, and three jihadists with links to the Islamic State uh, were, well, they eliminated themselves in that attack. Um, but they were all linked also to the Paris attack in November of 2015, uh, at, including at the Bataclan Theater and the Stade de France. So these uh, these international jihadist networks with ties to the Islamic State are still plotting attacks, still alive and well. And 
it, it seems sometimes, I, I think we should just be honest about it and say it, that, that our best defense, our best defenses are luck and their ineptitude. And those two things are tied together. But uh, thank God they're not more um, skilled, for the most part, at murder and mayhem. I mean, that these uh, psychopaths blow themselves up without blowing up anyone else, or they run their vehicle into another vehicle without even getting their hands on the numerous firearms that they've brought along. It's just, we keep getting lucky in the sense that there could be so many more casualties from these attacks. And then finally, when somebody with training or uh, when our luck runs out and there's a mass casualty situation, we're told, oh, well, this is only a once in a while thing. It's really not a once in a while thing anymore. We get that, right? This is now an ongoing, continuous cycle of jihadist terror attacks against Europe and uh, and against America. Fortunately for us, less frequently, but that could change. So we will have uh, updates for you if there are any. I mean, I'm assuming the situation right now under control, but a, a guy tried to, a, a guy yells Allahu Akbar, according to the reports, and blows up a suicide vest in Belgium. Uh, it seems right now like we can't have a day go by without someone somewhere trying to kill innocent people in the name of the Islamic State in either a, a European country or, or somewhere. Um, so we will, as I said, keep an eye on that. And also on the national security side, we'll have to talk about the rising tensions with Russia. Part of this is a reflection of what's really happening. And I think part of this is also tied into the uh, elevated sense of uh, belligerence that we have right now with regard to Russia because of the way the media covers Russia, which is really not about national security. It's about domestic politics. It's about Hillary should have won the election, they say, and Trump stole it from her and he used Russia. So they just want to talk about Russia a lot because now the association, the word association game for most Democrats is Russia Trump. It doesn't matter what it is. You bring up uh, Putin cracking down on journalists. They're running a Russia story. It's Russia Trump. Always some story about the uh, the Russian bear scare in the media, and it's because, as I said, the associations become so strong, at least for Democrats. Uh, and then, you know, w- whenever you talk about Putin, then there's an opening to talk about the associations with the Trump campaign, right? That's that's how the game is played. All you need is a news story about Russia somewhere, and you can turn it into a, hey, let's talk about the Mueller collusion investigation, or hey, you know, Unsourced reporting about how Flynn is flipping on the Trump administration or whatever it may be. All you need. Um, and that's what's that's what's going on here. And But I will talk to you about the real concerns that uh, we should have about uh, Russian interventionism. U.S. interventionism, by the way, in Syria that runs up into or brushes up against the Russian version, which is a very real concern, should be a very real concern for us. Um, and uh, we've got a whole lot of other things I want to talk about today on the show. Uh, but the big news item here at home today, and we're going to spend some time on this because I think it's uh, it, it's going to be fun to see how this plays out. Uh, the big political story, of course, is this special election in Georgia where you have a Republican House candidate, Karen Handel, squaring off against John Ossoff, I saw some stuff on the social media about people writing, 
get uh, get us off uh, my lawn, and uh, there's some there's some funny stuff, uh, funny stuff out there about this guy. Uh, but he this is the most expensive. Um, this is the most expensive house race in history. This is the most money that's ever been poured into a congressional race. And we understand why, right? Democrats are, are kind of desperate for some political win other than just talking about an investigation into Trump collusion with Russia that I promise you, uh, well, I shouldn't say I promise you is going nowhere. I'm almost sure is going nowhere. If I'm wrong, I'll be the first to admit it, but I'm not wrong. So uh, the... $55 million that has been spent on this congressional election. Uh, this is for uh, this is for the seat that was vacated by Tom, uh, what is it, Tom Price, so he could take the job at Health and Human Services, uh, HHS secretary. So this is, uh, this is going to, we're, we're getting results tonight. So uh, we won't, I don't think we'll know while I'm on air, which is a shame, but uh, we'll keep you as up to date as we possibly can. Um, but he, here's how this is shaking out. You, you've got Karen Hanna, who, by the way, she she's says she's feeling good about this. Every politician, though, going into Election Day says they feel good, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter who it is. I'm sure Dennis Kucinich has said at different times that he feels good about his chances for the presidency, too, right? So it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, everyone's going to say they feel good at some point. But, we... uh, but here's what Karen Handel uh, said, and she got in a little a little slap at Mr. Ossoff here. The people of the 6th District want this to be about the 6th District. They are not interested in Hollywood and California coming in and buying this seat, and they are very concerned about an individual who does not even live in this district. For me, the voters in the 6th, they know me and they trust me, and that's why I feel really good about today. I mean, this is this is a great example of how the Democrats play the game these days. They've got this guy, Azov, who's 30 years old, who has a resume of nothing, right? At least the, uh, the, 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 similar, the similarly, you know, telegenic, uh, moderate leftist Emmanuel Macron had spent some time in government before they decided to make him the president of France uh, recently. But uh, Azov, Mr. John Azov here, ha- has no real resume to speak of, uh, and he's 30 years old. I mean, I'm 35, and I feel like I'd be cutting on your run for Congress, but he's 30 years old. And uh, by the way, my, my district in New York City would be, I don't even know, I, I think I would need a, a hammer and, and sickle T-shirt on to run. I mean, there's just no way. It's so far left. I don't even know who my, I, I'm admitting right now, I don't even know who the congressman or woman is from New York for my district because I live in probably one of the bluest parts of the whole city. Uh, but anyway, Os- Mr. Ossoff is running for a seat in a place where he does not live. And I, I got to give credit to the Washington Free Beacon. I love this piece. They had somebody walk from Ossoff's residence uh, to this district, which was formerly Newt Gingrich's congressional district. It's outside of outside of Atlanta. Um, and and you had you had this Washington Free Beacon guy walking around to see how far because you know Ozov is like it's a couple blocks away, it's a couple blocks away. Um, well, not really. If by a couple blocks you mean a few miles, <laughs> if if you mean a, a long 
difficult walk on a hot summer day in the Atlanta area, uh, then yeah, it's a few blocks away, but it is most certainly not. Uh, so he doesn't live in the district. The money coming in for his campaign, $33 million, by the way. Um, by the way, I'm seeing others saying that $40 million has been spent on the election. So, you know, it's it's a lot of money. But, I mean, the NBC says $40 million, The Times says $55 million, So, whatever. All we know is the most expensive congressional election in history. Um, but... He doesn't live in the district. He's got money pouring in from outside the district. He has no experience, no background to speak of. But they're making this a moment when they can stand up and say, see, Democrats can win at the Democrats can win again. And oh, by the way, Trump is toxic. This is all about the midterms. This is about creating the initial push for a political momentum that will continue through the midterms uh, coming up next year. And so that's why there's all, so much of a focus on this. This isn't the first time we've been through this, by the way. There's There have also been special elections in Kansas and Montana. In the case of Montana, you had the Republican uh, guilty of an, of an assault on a reporter the day before, but no one really cared. They voted for, I shouldn't say no one cared, but they didn't care enough to not elect the guy. Uh, so he won. John, John Forte, I believe, was the congressman's name. Uh, Gian Forte, whatever, close enough. So we have this big congressional race, and and here's what I say. This is a referendum, but it's not a referendum on Trumpism. This does have bigger implications, but the implications of this congressional race outside of Atlanta aren't what the media has been saying and going to say tonight about the direction of politics in this country. This is... In microcosm form, this is emblematic of this young guy with no background and no particular skills or accomplishments to speak of, but who kind of fits the profile. Like, looks like a guy who could be cast on a show on HBO with Lena Dunham playing the the sensitive progressive writer who lives in Brooklyn, right? I mean, that's, that's why they like him so much. And... It's emblematic, really, of what the Democrat Party has become, which is all style over substance. It's all facade and front over getting the job done, over issues, over principles. It's the creation and even the falsification of political candidates uh, that are entirely concocted by consultants and a media narrative. There's nothing authentic about them. But it doesn't really matter because they can win, or at least they're hoping they can in this case. And that's really, I mean, the, the Democrat Party is whatever it has to be, whenever it has to be it in order to win. In some cases, sure, maybe that's an authentic candidate for the area, but there's, there's nothing. What does the Democrat Party stand for? Whatever the people in the area who are going to vote Democrat wanted to. It stands for statism, bigger government, more taxation and an end to traditional American values and the replacement with it with something else. And really the um, completion of Obama's promise to fundamentally transform America, transform it away from traditional American values into, I don't know, whatever whatever comes after traditional American values. So that this guy Ossoff is actually a, a great example of what the Democrat Party has become.
Ah, the congressional race for the 6th District. It's on. Oh, yeah. You got a lot of votes coming in. Nearly 150,000 people cast ballots in early voting. Three times the early vote in uh, April when only 193,000 ballots were cast overall, according to the New York Times here. About 40,000 people who voted early in the runoff did not vote at all in April. So this is is heating up. And, oh, they're getting this thing all ready to go. Um, so they have the narrative in place. Oh, by the way, Az- Azov, when asked, you know, I mean, should you should you live in the congressional district you want to be the congressman for? Does, you know, does it matter? It's a it's a fair question, right? Mr. Azov was asked, and he answered, and this is what he said. Well, if voters were raising that as a serious concern, Steph, maybe I would, but voters care about how policy and how representation is going to impact their daily lives. They know I grew up in this community. They know I grew up in the 6th District. They know why I'm a couple miles south of the line. It's just not a major issue in the race. couple of miles south. Like, you know, it, it, it's it, he doesn't live there. And if this is the new rule, right, I mean, why can't I just, I mean, well, maybe this is a good idea. I'll just pick a, a red district somewhere in New York State where they like America and freedom and classical music and dark chocolate. I don't know, bulldogs, things that I like, whatever. We'll find a, a district somewhere in New York, and I'll just try to raise money and run there, even though I don't live there, because who cares, right? You know, this the, the Democrats pull this stuff all the time. I mean, you had Hillary— Oh, yeah, that's right. Hillary, hello. You had Hillary running as a as the senator and won and was the senator from New York. There's no connection to New York, but New York, media center, power, politics, money all comes together under the Clinton brand. And boom, Election Day happens. You get uh, Hillary Clinton as the senator from New York. Although I do think Giuliani, had he not uh, had a serious illness at the time and had to withdraw from the race, I think Giuliani might have beaten her that first time around. Or at least I'd li- I like to think so. Maybe that's uh, wishful thinking. Um, but yeah, so he doesn't have to live, don't, don't have to live in the district. So, you know, why not just have people, you know, just run from wherever they are in the country? You, know, you sort, of, sort of, uh, you know how you can work remotely now for a lot of different companies and, hey, I'm going to work remotely. I want to be a remote congressman. Find find me a red a red district somewhere in the country where you know they they could use a, a young conservative and we'll just raise a bunch of money and I'll just I'll just run for that you know why not I mean obviously I'm not going to do this but I'm just saying theoretically it seems to me like a, 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 you know what difference does it make if, if you could live outside the district and run for that district why can't you live if you can live five miles away why can't you live fifty <laughs> I mean if it's just about the issues well we all have. The same issues at the national level. I mean, the Congress is dealing with this. You know, the whole point of the Congress and and the House of Representatives is you're supposed to represent that district and the specific concerns of that district. And you're supposed to go to D.C. and uh, be a leader, yes, but you're supposed to help out your home district, right? You're supposed to know what those concerns and problems and issues are. But Mr. Ozoff, I guess he's just above that. We'll be right back. This is all a political circus at this point. Democrats and sadly much of the liberal media are using this as an excuse just to attack the president. There's an amazing divide. When you're in Washington, D.C., the only question any reporter ever wants to ask you about is about Russia, is about impeachment, is about attacking the president. When I go home to Texas, I travel the state. Mm -hmm. I answer questions from people across the state. Nobody asks about that.
<laughs> I mean, it it is the best example of the uh, political ideological divide in this country right now, whether or not you really care about the Russia collusion probe at this point or not. Uh, you know, I, I was I was walking down the street today and I saw one of the uh, there's a lot of I live in a, in a mixed uh, use area in terms of its residential and commercial. And so there's all kinds of there's like construction projects going on and there's renovations of huge buildings. And then there's a couple of people who live there like me that are slowly being driven insane by the constant noise and jackhammering and everything else. Welcome to New York City, everybody, uh, where you, too, can spend all of your take home pay on a. You know, three hundred square foot paradise. Um, but it's it's amazing. You know, I was I was walking down the street and, and I saw this guy and he he's one of the. There are some you know there are friendlies uh, in New York that uh, when they see you and they know you're from the conservative side of things, people get kind of excited because it's like we're all part of a little secret society known as the Republican Party. In New York City, it is a little secret society. It's really. You know, it's we might as well have a little handshake or, you know, a little sign that we make to each other on the street like we're, you know, because we don't want the the authorities to be aware of our presence here. Um, I was walking by him and he's just, you know, the guy's smoking a cigarette. He's working on a working on a project on my on my block. And he's just like, you know, man, uh, this this all this stuff they're telling us, it's just wasting everybody's time. It's even really a, a waste of, of their time. I'm like, well, you know, it's it's about trying to regain power, and then they want to they want to try and do what they want to do. Um, you know, they figure that as long as they can obstruct and stop, and then get more uh, get more house seats in the midterm, and then they they look for the presidency in 2020. And you know, that, that's that's the game, right? That's what they're trying to do. But I just thought it was interesting because like it's just it's just a waste of time at this point now. And it really is. I've 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 reached the point of frustration as well with it. I mean, clearly that's what Senator Cruz is talking about here too. You know, if they have something, I want to hear it. Otherwise, okay, they they got their Mueller probe. I'm sure they're all going to feel really good about themselves. You know, Democrats and the media are going to feel really good about themselves when you know they they get some like second tier Trump's Trump staffer for. Uh, misstating something on a federal form because he was embarrassed or something about when he you know when he applied for the job or you know they're going to get somebody on some nothing and this is see you know, this is corruptions being rooted out of the white house it's going to be a big uh dressed up nothing burger it's going to be very very sad for that person of course probably go bankrupt and you know get get visits from you know his wife or husband depending on who we're talking about here they'll probably get a just historically speaking they'll if they're going to just get somebody they'll probably get some guy in the white house and the uh trapped in the net the legal net here um but you know the democrats will feel good about themselves i guess i, I don't know I, I don't know how some journalists sleep at night i really mean that you know i, I think that there's I, I give uh what was it um uh, one of the writers of the federalist we got we got our friend david harsani joining later on in the program um but uh maggie I can't remember her last name right now, but she's great, and she writes the Federalist. And I saw her tweet something about how you know sometimes it feels like journalism is a reverse meritocracy. I think that's so true. I mean, some of the people that are revered in this business of media uh, are just the worst. I mean, they're terrible. They're not particularly smart. They're not ethical. They're not. Uh, they're not thoughtful. They're not kind. They're not constructive. Right. They're just. They're just the the grown up versions of 
the snarky, mean kids who weren't cool in high school but were just putting everybody else down. But now, because they have huge megaphones, they have a way of they have a way of monetizing and, and using that for their own gain, right? So it wasn't like they were the quarterback of the football team in high school. They weren't the cool kids. They were the kids who were too cool for the cool kids. Now they write for big news organizations and they have their own TV shows and they don't really have radio shows because the left doesn't really do radio. At least doesn't do it well, thankfully. Uh, but they're just out there and they're they're just throwing all this trash at people, and it's such a such a uh, a cesspool, even worse than a swamp. A swamp, which is a term for a wetland, right? Now we always, whenever the federal government wants to regulate them, they call them wetlands, but it's a swamp. <laughs> we have an old term for it, a swamp. Um, but now we're trying to drain the swamp, but a cesspool is obviously worse than a swamp, stinkier and uh, more full of human refuse. Uh, and media has just turned into a cesspool. You know, a, a lot of the baser instincts of journalists, unfortunately, I think, are uh, rewarded with, you know, with social media following, with access, with TV appearances. Uh, and it, it brings the level down everywhere. Uh, when principled, ethical, considerate, constructive, intelligent uh, work in media is is pushed aside in favor of either just the nastiest or the highest shock value stuff. We all suffer as a result, and that's what's going on right now. And the Russia stuff is a great example of it. I mean, just just take a look at some of these reporters. The same people that are writing supposedly serious pieces about how, oh, we've, you know, we're following the Trump-Mueller probe, and look what happens here, look what happens there. Uh, then they'll tweet out something about how, you know, it's, uh, oh, it, it, my sources are saying that it's just a matter of time before it all comes crumbling down and, you know, they're going to be marching people out of the White House in handcuffs. And not for collusion with Russia, they're not. I mean, maybe for some uh, dressed up minor in- infraction, right, as, as, we, as I like to talk to you about here, malum prohibitum as opposed to malum in se malum prohibitum bad because the government says it's bad malum in se bad because it's actually just bad uh, working with russia to destroy the electoral uh, the integrity of the electoral process to over you know to essentially nullify the election and yeah that would be malum in se that would be bad but that's not what happened right so they're not going to get anybody on that because that's not reality they may get somebody though on malum prohibitum government making you sit down answer enough questions uh, you know, look, I, I hated all the stuff that I had to fill out when I was in government, all the different forms and everything. I'm like, oh, I mean, I, I think this is right. And, you know, I mean, you, you do your best. It's kind of like filling out your taxes. There's so much stuff. And like I said, if they want to get you, they'll get you. If they want to get you, they'll get you. And if they want to let you off, they'll let you off, right? That's that's the scary part about our current federal criminal code. You know, if you're Hillary, they'll they'll twist themselves in pretzels and you'll get away with it. I'm amazing. I can do anything. I'm Hillary. and And it's true. If you're uh, a politically delicious target, then they'll just throw the book at you. I mean, then you're going to get crushed. And, and that doesn't mean you have to be famous, by the way. It just means you have to serve a political purpose. So it can be some nobody. No, it can be some nobody that gets caught up in this Mueller probe, and, and all of a sudden we're going to be told that this is really important and it's, you know, symbolic of the good work that Mueller's doing here. By the way, Mueller and Comey are friends. Don't we think that that should be an issue in all this? I would think it would be, but I also want to know why this doesn't expand to the investigation to Hillary's emails. If it, if it's about the election and the integrity of the election, 
Shouldn't it also be about the DOJ's treatment of Hillary Clinton's emails? Shouldn't Mueller have to look at that, too? Why not? If not, why not? I'd like an explanation of that. Uh, and as I said, if Mueller's not going to look at it, well, maybe they should appoint a special counsel, you know, see how the see how they like it on their side. Get the DOJ, uh, you know, have have Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General, appoint a uh, special counsel. Actually, it could just be Sessions. doesn't have to be Rosenstein because it's nothing to do with Russia, right? Just do the Hillary email. Look into that whole thing. We've already been told by the FBI director that there was, if not foul play, certainly funky play. Something something doesn't smell right with the whole thing. So why not? I, I say I say go for it. Um, but anyway, back to my discussion with my buddy on the street today. As he was smoking a cigarette, working on some projects, uh, construction stuff in New York. He's just like, man, I'm tired of it, you know. And I was looking at him like, you know, I was going to get my coffee in the morning. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm tired of it too. It just reaches a point now where uh, until they have something, I kind of just want people to shut up about it. You know, I, I just don't really. Now, I know you might say to me, well, Buck, why are you talking about it now? If we don't push back against the innuendos and uh, and the rumor mill and all the other stuff that's out there, well, then people start to take it as truth and it'll have the political impact and the political effect that the Democrats want it to. And I don't want that. So. We've got to shoot this stuff down as it pops up, but I also just feel like you know the, the media ha- the media really has overplayed its hand here. I mean, and the great thing is now because the internet, we we can just pull up what they've said in the past, and and it's it's not going to go away that that there were that that the there was a mass hysteria that overtook uh, most of the newsrooms for this country, at least the big ones. And uh, people really should have their 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 credibility cards should be revoked. I'd call it that. Uh, we're gonna hit a break here, team. Eight four four nine hundred buck. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. I want to talk to you about the uh, Philando Castile verdict because they've released the dash cam video, and uh, have some thoughts on that. Discuss you also Russia and U.S. tensions escalating a bit, um, and. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about some other stuff. Oh, also, uh, a case the media does not want to discuss anymore because it's not a hate crime. It's, quote, road rage, but it involves an illegal alien. They don't really talk about that. And much more. Stay with me. Week, and I, I spoke to you about it, or a verdict in, over the last week, I should say, um, in the Philando uh, Castile case. Uh, Officer Geronimo Yanez fired uh, seven shots uh, at Philando Castile while he was in his car last year. Um, He killed him, and people could see the aftermath of this on Facebook Live. His girlfriend was in the car. There was also a child in the back seat. And the video, the dash cam video, has just been released after the the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. They acquitted him on a manslaughter charge. We have some of the audio the, for the, from the critical moments of the exchange that became fatal. Uh, this is, just as a, a warning here, this is tough to listen to, and uh, even tougher when you watch it. You can watch the video. Um, but here is what the exchange that led to the uh, gun, led to the officer pulling out his gun and shooting seven shots fatally um, uh, at Castile. This is how it went. Play it. Okay. Firearm okay. Don't reach for it then. Don't pull it out. Don't pull it out. Oh, 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 oh,
keep saying, don't reach for it, don't reach for it. And uh, the w- woman in the in the car with him is his girl Castile's girlfriend is is yelling out you just shot him and he wasn't reaching for he wasn't reaching for a gun now there's some there's some backstory to this that's necessary and I, I know I spoke to you earlier and, and it strikes me as uh th- this is this is tough uh it's a tragedy Castile should not have been uh, should not have been shot and killed and I feel very badly for his family for his girlfriend for the child who's in the back seat um but there's a distinction to be made between someone should not have been killed and someone is guilty of manslaughter, form of murder. In this case, the officer, Officer Yanez. Now, Yanez believed, Officer Yanez believed that he was pulling over somebody who may have been involved in a recent armed robbery in the area. This is what he told investigators. So he was on alert. Um, he also, as he approached the vehicle, uh, smelled marijuana. Didn't say anything about that initially because he didn't want to escalate the confrontation. There was another officer, it should be noted, on the scene who was assisting on the other side of the vehicle. You can see all of this. Uh, we, we will put the video on, uh, for those of you listening, we'll put it up on uh, Facebook because I think it's important. This is evidence if you want to really know what happened here. Um, because, by the way, I think now that this dash cam video is out there, you will see uh, a renewed push of activism and possibly uh, protests that extend beyond the uh, extend beyond the area of Minnesota and uh, Minneapolis um, uh, because this is this is it's difficult to watch uh, because you know that this is a, a tragic really a tragic misunderstanding is what led to the shooting at least here's part of the problem you have, as I said, marijuana. Look, that's not that doesn't mean the officers in any jeopardy, but it did. It's it did possibly affect Castile's uh, ability to respond in a fashion that made would make the officer feel comfortable in the course of the exchange. Meaning that he's you know he was speaking clearly, he was obeying verbal commands uh, as a person who wasn't under the influence of marijuana would. Uh, but the words. Uh, I have a gun on me. Now, Castile was a concealed carry permit holder. Uh, but he's supposed to say, as I understand it, I am a concealed carry holder, not I have a gun on me. Saying I have a gun on me to a police officer in this circumstance, uh, I understand how people would, you could see this one of two ways. You could say, well, if he had ill intent towards the officer, if he was trying to be aggressive, he wouldn't announce that he has a, a firearm on him. Um, but you also have to see it from the other side of it, which is this officer has pulled over someone he believes is an armed robbery suspect. He doesn't know this person, and he is told, he's told, I have a gun on me by this individual. And then he says, don't, and, and it's, Castile was reaching for his concealed carry uh, uh, identification, but he's reaching for something. He said he had a, has a gun on him, and the officer pulls out his firearm and shoots him. Now, I, I I still think that you know the officer um, was uh, too fast on the trigger with this, but I also know that a lot of my former police uh, friends and colleagues in the NYPD would probably say, "Well, yeah, Buck, but you've never you've never pulled somebody over who's under the influence, tells you he has a gun, and you're worried that he's a robbery suspect. He doesn't maybe doesn't want to go away for ten or fifteen years," which which would be a fair comment to make. 
in terms of, you know, I don't know what that's like. And I'm not in that situation day in and day out. Traffic stops are very dangerous as far as uh, the percentages go for when officers may be uh, attacked. And so, uh, you know, this is, it's it's tough. I, I've seen well-intentioned, uh, thoughtful, and uh, reasonable analysis from people that take both sides of this, that this this looks like it is, it is manslaughter. I don't think anybody believes that Officer Yanez just wanted to kill Castile for no reason, but there also has to be accountability for a police officer putting on the uniform, carrying around a firearm, and uh, acting in a way that was, in this case, too hasty and cost a man his life. So it's when you see the dash cam. Remember the the dash cam dash cam footage was just released, and it's it, the jury saw this, and they found him. They found the officer not guilty. Um, I I think that this was the the, the tragic moment here is when he says, "I have a gun," and then starts reaching for something, because there there was a lack of communication between Castile and the officer. The officer needed to hear, "I'm a concealed carry holder." I'm letting you know that for your safety, officer, I'm going to keep my hands on the wheel and obey your commands. But if Castile's under the influence of marijuana and he's reaching for something, the officer is scared and was in was in fear for his. Remember, that's the standard for police. Are, were you in a reasonable fear for your safety, for your life? The jury clearly thought so. But and none of this is to say that it's not it's a tragedy no matter what. I, mean, I feel like I said, I feel really terrible for. Castile's family, for the girlfriend who was next to him, and for the the kid in the back seat uh, who witnessed this whole thing. But it's, it's watch the dash cam video. Um, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on this team. Eight four four nine hundred buck. Let me know. We'll be right back. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. I see a lot of different networks are planning special coverage of the special election. We got polls closed in Georgia. The 6th congressional seat uh, is hanging in the balance here. It is one seat in Congress. There's a lot of congressmen running around, but there's one seat that is open here. The whole nation is, well, at least the whole media wants the nation to be fixated on the outcome here. As soon as we get some numbers, if we get numbers, we will certainly let you know. But polls have closed in Georgia for the the sixth uh, sixth district, most most expensive congressional race. In history, and by the way, you can be sure that the tone and maybe even the description from the Democrats, if this guy John Ossoff beats Karen Handel, uh, you can be sure that this will be that uh, they'll they'll trot out all the uh, usual historical um, historical analogies or uh, uh, battles. You know, they'll, they'll say this is this this was the Trumpism's Waterloo, or you know. The beginning of the the beginning of the end of the beginning or something. I mean, it wouldn't be Waterloo because that would be a really big deal. But you know, they're going to say something. They'll 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 overstate the importance of this because it it helps their cause to make this, if the Democrat wins, as big a referendum as possible. By the way, if it's even close, because this tends to be a red, predominantly uh, Republican district, 
By the way, I completely disagree with the notion of Republicans as reds and uh, Democrats as blue. Maybe worth talking to you about uh, another time. But this is just this was actually foisted on us by the media and relatively recently, just a few decades ago. When you think about it, Republicans should be blue. Democrats, much closer to socialists, much closer to the workers' parties of the world and all that. Red. Oh, they should definitely be red. Commie red for the Democrats, blue for the Republicans. That's the way it should be. But they've made just like the, they call themselves liberal, right? To throw us off from the fact that they're statists. They're not liberals at all. There's nothing liberal about these people, but I digress. But yeah, sir, if if Asaf wins, this is uh this is Waterloo, this is Thermopylae, this is uh, midway, I don't know. Pick, you know, pick a pick a, 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 a actium, a major battle from history, even though this is minor, right? But they're going to blow it out of proportion, is what I'm saying. And if uh, if he loses by a pretty substantial margin, well, then this is like I don't know, some war involving uh, you know Azerbaijan from the 80s or something. Then then it's a little battle that nobody remembers or has heard about. Um, so that's we'll keep an eye on the uh, the sixth congressional district and we'll see what's going on there because you know. Why not? Right. This is this is where narratives are shaped, my friends, in the in the newsrooms across the country that are going to pretend that one congressional seat going this way or the other is a bellwether for the rest of the country, which, of course, it isn't. But it's more fun to pretend it is. And so why not? Eight, four, four, nine hundred buck, by the way, on the lines. Uh, I, I do, especially if I've got any uh, team buck law enforcement out there that has a or former law enforcement or just anybody with an opinion. But. Particularly if you're a current or former law enforcement, you have some thoughts on the Philando Castile dash cam video that was just released. Uh, it's it's tough to watch. Um, it's you know you see a man losing his life and he and he shouldn't have lost his life. The question is, does the police officer Yanez have criminal culpability for it? I mean, he's going to live with this for the rest of his life, and I I, I promise you, he did not he he. Did not intend to that day, did not want to, and does not feel good, I would imagine, at all about anything that happened that day. I mean, I'm not the man. I can't speak directly for his state of mind, but I I would assume that he feels terrible about the whole thing. Um, But was he criminally culpable for it? Uh, We've got a bunch of calls up on the board. Let's take some. Josh in North Carolina, what's up? Shields high, Buck. Shields high. Uh, the Philando Castile incident. Um, the the Philando Castile made a series of mistakes. If you're a concealed carry permit holder, you and you have weed in the car, that's not kosher. That's not okay. Um, yeah, you can't you can't be in possession of a firearm and have a, and have illegal drugs, right? That's that's a specific federal offense, I believe, unto itself. Exactly right, and also if, if he's been through the class, he'd have known better than to reach for what for his his uh his uh identification or his card or whatever. Maybe he was high, maybe he wasn't. Having said that, I think the officer, as a as a plenipotentiary object of the state, should be held to a higher standard. I mean. He, the officer didn't see a weapon presented. He could have waited that other second. There's a reason he has a bulletproof vest on. I'm not disparaging anybody, but in serve and protect. I mean, I see where he would have been. I see where a citizen would have been in enough fear 
to to fire their weapon. But uh, I think the the representatives of the state should have some restraint. John, Josh, if I'm asking, are, are you a CCW guy? I'm not. I mean, I live in an open carry state. Oh, right. Okay, good call. So. Uh, I'm just wondering what the uh, specific uh, training is for the the class in in Minnesota. I mean, I, I imagine because when you think about it, telling police officer I have a gun is is not is not a good way to de-escalate. It's in fact, I think it could be seen by the officer as an immediate escalation, right? To say you what you would want to say is I'm a concealed carry holder officer. I have a legal firearm on me, and I just wanted to be clear about that. But as we pointed out, once you add weed into the equation and a misunderstanding, um, but I, you know, this there's 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 a little bit of there there are missteps here on both sides. I think that much is clear. Uh, a man shouldn't have lost his life as a result of this. The question is, where does the culpability lie? Is there criminal culpability here, Josh? Where, where do you come down on that? Yeah, you're exactly. I mean, I think we're in agreement on about the way it shakes out, but the, the criminal culpability, ah. Uh, I don't know, man, because, I mean, you know me from our interactions. I'm leery of the state, and I feel like the representatives of the state should be held. I think manslaughter is not not, um, off the table, but apparently, you know. Yeah, look, I think think it's a a closer call than than the, well, I think it's a pretty close call. That much much I will say. But, Josh, North Carolina, man, good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Uh, Scott in Florida on WFLA. What's up, Scott? Hey, man. Uh, We love your show here. Uh, We love our president here, man. We're rooting for him 100%. We want to see the investigation stop. As far as the uh, cop shooting the guy, man, I don't think he should have done that. It's terrible. Um, I think it boils down to training. He didn't see a gun. Didn't see the man, you know, aggressively trying to do anything. Um, yeah, the officer. The officer uh, kept. I mean, he, he clearly, uh, he he was he was tense during this whole exchange, and you know, he he drew he drew down quickly and fired, and and you know, it, it's I, I I can imagine the officer maybe did feel that he was under threat, but then it turns into the the question that becomes. Was that a reasonable belief under the circumstances? Then did the officer do everything possible to de-escalate short of lethal force? And and you know, not not clear to me. I I I would have had this. This is a this is a tough I'm one. You on that boat. It's I'm tough. On you, I'm with you on that. Boat. Yeah, uh, you know. Hey I, man, love your show here. Yeah, rock and roll. Thank, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Shield time, man. Thank you. This this is you know. By, and by the way, though, I will say that the the idea that you have to see a weapon. Before you uh, would engage with lethal force, I, I I don't think that that's a fair standard for the officers. If somebody says, I've got a gun in my pocket and I'm going to grab it and I'm going to shoot. Now, of course, that's not what happened here, but I'm just saying so we can understand. If somebody says, I've got a gun in my pocket, I've got a gun in my pocket. And, you know, this this could come up, for example, with a suicide by cop situation, which, again, that's not what Philando Castile was. But I'm just saying when... What is the standard for do you have to see a weapon before you engage with lethal force? And if somebody were to say, I've got a gun in my pocket, the officer says, take your hands out of your pockets, take your hands out of your pockets, and you quickly pull your hands out, uh, and the officer believes that you've got a firearm there, and he shoots, uh, I think I think he's on solid ground with use of force. If Again, if you've told him, I have a gun in my pocket, right, and and you move quickly, and the officer thinks that you're drawing down on him, you know, to say, well, you got to wait till you see the, you know the the end of the firearm itself. I mean that that could be the last thing that officer ever sees. 
So, but look, uh, it's it's tough, and the the dash cam, I will say, uh, for me, the the two, you know, the uh, the dash cam footage is very tough, um, to, very tough to watch, but also it does not does not look good for the officer. If I were on that jury, I would have thought, oh, this does not, this does not look, this whole exchange does not look good. Um, but also Castile saying, I've got a gun on me. And then there's kind of a, 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 an exchange back and forth. It's not totally clear what's being said by Castile to the officer. Saying, I've got a gun on me was, uh, that was not the right cho- choice of words under the cir- circumstances. But that, again, doesn't mean the man should have been shot. I'm just saying it, it was a, I believe it led to a, a series of escalations and misunderstandings that, uh, and Castillo lost his life as a result. All right, I, I want to switch gears here and talk a bit about uh, the policies that we could be focused on, that the Republicans should be dealing with, and then we'll talk about Russia, escalation, some national security uh, topics to hit on, and uh, much more. So, team, we'll be right back. Stay with me. The polls have closed in all but two precincts, as I'm live with you now on air here in Georgia 6th District. Uh, the other two are remaining open until 7.30 p.m., so just a few minutes here, they will close. There were some uh, problems with the voting there, but they're just keeping it open an extra 30 minutes. So there is that. Now let's talk about, oh, oh by the way, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Uh, he says that uh, there will be a discussion draft coming out on health care. Let's hear it. 20. I expect to have a discussion draft on Thursday, and we will go to the bill, obviously, once we get a CBO score, likely next week. And we've been told that health care is completely essential and necessary uh, for the perp, uh, for later on passing something on taxes, right? That that first you got to do health care, then there'll be some savings that'll help pay for taxes. By the way, I never liked this formulation of paying for tax cuts. I don't really understand why we accept that discussion of it. Um, tax tax cuts are taking from people. There's no established okay level of tax cuts that is the only level of tax i mean sorry level of taxation that's the only level of taxation so i i don't like that that formulation um but i i digress but speaker ryan speaking of taxes speaker ryan today was talking some bold talk you know he's uh he's out there saying that they're gonna get this they're gonna get tax reform done saith the ryan you will hear that tax reform is coming along one day then you will hear that tax reform is dead then you will hear that it's back on track then you will hear that it's on life support sometimes you will hear this the same week sometimes you'll hear this in the same day heck sometimes you'll hear this in the same hour (laughs) do not be surprised by any of this i am here to tell you we are going to get this done in 2017 is, is now is that but is that you know Paul Ryan reminds me a little of the character Chris Traeger from Parks and Rec who's like super healthy and into running and sort of like Paul Ryan's really into P90X and working out and stuff and is kind of upbeat and happy and so that's a good thing um but is, is that just kind of happy talk from Paul Ryan is that just supposed to inspire confidence but 
there's really nothing to it. Well, he did give us also some some specifics today. I think tax reform matters a whole lot. I think it should matter to all of us. Matter to you, matter to me. Your taxes are too high. The tax code is preposterous. It is too complicated. It's unfair. Special interests have carved out all kinds of little goodies for themselves. And it is the single largest monument to government intrusion in our daily lives, to social engineering under the guise of fairness. Uh, it, it is not progressive even in, in a true sense of wealth redistribution. If it was a truly progressive tax code, it would not be on income. It would be on assets. Ooh, I know. By the way, that would change. Everyone that right now is on the left who's all, oh, I don't know how the taxes are. Taxes are great or whatever. It's because they've made so much money that they're essentially living off of assets they've already accumulated. So it doesn't matter. Their their expenses are covered. In fact, they're probably just getting richer while covering their expenses from the income off of assets and, and investments as opposed to uh, income that they're trying to build up over time into an asset that will produce uh, for them down the line, i.e. the money that you get paid for wages, that's taxed, right? That That's taxed all the time. But So you can live in a $10 million house uh, and or $10 million mansion somewhere and you're making, and may, maybe even your investments are, are taxed at the long-term capital gains rate. So what's that, uh, 15%, 20%? I forget. Um, while somebody else is, you know, living hand-to-mouth, and they're just, they're, or, or, you know, in a major city like San Francisco or something, and they're making, you know, 150 grand, you're in the same tax bracket. That's that. If it was truly about fairness, that's not fair, right? So the tax code is unjust. It is, I will just say it, it is an unjust tax code. It is not fair, it is not right, it is not clear, and it could be made better. They tell us they want to make it better. Well, Ryan gave us some specifics on that. First, we will eliminate harmful, burdensome taxes, including the death tax and the alternative minimum tax. Next, we will clear out special interest carve-outs and expensive deductions and focus on keeping those that make the most sense. Home ownership charitable giving, retirement savings. We will consolidate the existing seven brackets into three, double the standard deduction, and simplify things to the point that you can do your own taxes on the form the size of a postcard. This, instead of the 1040 form. Wouldn't that be nice? Taxes on a postcard, he says, everybody. At what point do we get to hold them all accountable for the promises? At what point do we say that enough is enough? If they're just not, if they're not going to perform, I'm not going to listen. If they're not going to follow through, I don't want to hear it. They have the House, they have the Senate, they have the presidency. The Republican Party is in full political control. Okay, they don't have a supermajority, but let's be realistic here. If they can't do this now, they're never going to do this. If they can't do this now, we're going to have to wait. Who knows how long? I mean, and who knows if they'll ever have a supermajority? I mean, this is just, it's just nonsensical at this point. So we have Ryan saying it will get done. Uh, I think, you know, the the House is starting to feel a little bit of the heat because you got a lot of people that have jobs in the House of Representatives that promised big things to get elected or to get reelected. And maybe now they're up for reelection. And what are they going to tell their constituents? Right now, if you're a Republican member of Congress, what's your take home for those when you when you go home over the recess, assuming they don't work through the recess, which has been raised as a possibility because 
people are so annoyed at how little has gotten done. What do you tell what do you tell your constituency? You say, oh, we passed a repeal and replace bill for Obamacare. OK, well, the Senate wouldn't even touch it. So how good could it have been? Oh, well, that's the Senate's fault. Well, you know, what, what exactly are we paying you guys for? You start to fall back also, I think, into the argument that maybe gridlock is maybe gridlock isn't just the status quo that we should be upset about. Maybe, maybe gridlock is just the way it's going to be and the way it should be. Um, the best we can. That's the true limited government, the limitations in government ability as a result of gridlock. I'd like to think that I'd like to take that as a, as a possible out here because of all the frustrations I have with the Republican Party right now. But then you look at regulatory agencies and the size of the federal criminal code and the growth and bureaucracy in the state. And you say, well, the problem is, even if the legislature is not doing much to speak of that benefits the American people or the government's still so big that we're, we're suffering anyway. Right. So so you could have Congress not even show up and do anything for six months. And there's still a lot that government's doing that we don't want it doing and government's uh, growing in one way or another, expanding its mandates and getting bigger and more intrusive and burdensome. It's burdensome. We are all having to deal with this in our different ways, whether in our businesses or professional lives, and it, it needs to stop. Um, I wanted to do a switch gears, come out up here and talk to you a bit about what I see as the uh, escalation with Russia, or at least the way the media is writing about it. We had a plane come pretty close to a, a Russian plane, come pretty close to a U.S. plane, and so everyone's saying, ooh, saber-rattling, Russia trying to, trying to show its tough side. Well, we'll get into what that really means and what it doesn't and uh, much more coming up here in just a few minutes, team. Stay with me. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Team, I want to get into a bit of uh, latest uh, in national security reporting and analysis going on today. So let's do a Buck brief. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Escalating tensions with Russia. Major headline uh, across the uh, the news uh, news sites in the last 24 hours. And also, the U.S. reportedly shot down an armed Iranian drone that was... Uh, Report that was, according to Fox News here, advancing on coalition forces in southern Syria uh, earlier today. Uh, so Fox uh, writes here that the armed pro-regime uh, UAV was shot down by a U.S. F-15 strike eagle after it displayed hostile intent and advanced on coalition troops. So remember, we had this drone shot down, this Iranian drone shot down uh, today, and then there was a an Assad regime plane— uh, manned aircraft shot down the day before that. So this airspace over Syria is getting uh, getting pretty uh, pretty tight these days. And the Russians have said that they may consider 
plains uh, west of the Euphrates River to be a, uh, well, to be possible targets, that they may uh, at least follow them as possible targets. They did not say they would shoot them down, but that is obviously the kind of rhetoric that puts people on edge who are uh, both the ones engaged in military operations in Syria and also those who are responsible for those uh, out there, either in the sky or on the ground. Uh, so here's what, oh, by the way, there was also this uh, story about a Russian fighter over the Baltics uh, that got too close to, or got, I think it was within five feet was the uh, initial reporting of a plane, of, of a U.S. plane. So Look, the, the Russians, this is not anything new. They're, they're testing the limits. Uh, it's understood that the, that the Russians, the Russian military, will see, uh, will, will see how far it can go in some of these areas, and then it will decide uh, to pull back. Um, but here's where things can get, I think, uh, complicated very quickly. The, the Russians are not going to go... Uh, the Russians are, yeah, the Russian plane, Russian jet came within five feet of a U.S. Air Force reconnaissance aircraft over the Baltic Sea, according to ABC News here. Uh, and it was deemed an unsafe encounter, meaning it's too close here, even if you didn't want to cause some sort of midair collision that could happen and that could have fatal consequences for really either pilot. So the, the Russians are being uh, agitators here. Russian military is uh, trying to trying to stir up some some tension and some trouble. I don't think the Russians are about to send in an armored division uh, to a Baltic state, which is an Article 5-covered NATO country, which means it's part of the collective defense provision under the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, I don't think the Russians are going to do that. I have no belief whatsoever that that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and I think we can separate out, by the way, the, the Syrian theater of war from... Uh, what's going on on the Russian periphery, right? So let's. Well, wh- why don't I actually deal with with the Syrian aspect first? So we know that that the Russians have talked some pretty tough game after we shot down a Syrian regime jet. I mentioned that to you yesterday when I was doing the show up in Boston, and uh, the Russians are clearly invested in keeping the Assad regime going, and this means that. Uh, they have a forward operating base for Russian military and naval assets, uh, and they also have a greater influence on what's going on in the Middle East. And they just, it's a projection of power issue. And also, Putin, who I, I saw today, does not get great marks from the Russians for his handling of the Russian economy. Although I'm sure it's true, well, maybe it's a little different in Russia because of the control the state wields over major industries and uh, and supposedly private concerns that do the Kremlin's bidding. Um, but Putin probably gets more blame and more credit for the economy than he deserves, depending on how you look at it, right? He does get credit for the creation, really, of a Russian middle class, because while he's been the president, there has been the there has been a Russian middle class, whereas obviously before um, the really the 2000s came along, this was just not the case. And much of that was built by, well, much of that dealt with oil revenue, and now that's collapsed, but, or it's a fraction of what it was because of oil prices right now. But still, 
gets credit for it. Putin gets credit for the creation of a Russian middle class from at least some Russians. I know people say that's unfair and Buck, that's crazy and Putin's terrible. He's a dictator. I, I get all that, but he gets creation for, for gets credit for some creation of the Russian middle class. But they also don't think he's doing a great job of the economy now. So what did he do? He's got to find ways to project Russian power and to show that he stands up for the Russian uh, for Russian interests abroad. And one means of doing that is projecting Russia as defenders of friends, i.e. the Assad regime in this case, and also a determined enemy of terrorism. They would say the Islamic State, but most of the Russian air sorties that we know of have been not against ISIS fighters in Syria, but in fact against other rebel groups on the ground. So uh, the, the Russians in Syria have had this interest in Assad. And as we expand more, we have U.S. military on the ground assisting the Kurdish militia as it is retaking Raqqa and surrounding areas. It is taking away all of the uh, land that it can, at least, taking away territory from the Islamic State. Uh, but as it does this, uh, that also means that we are getting closer to regime-held areas. And we've been operating under this defeat ISIS, don't worry about Assad policy. I don't know how long that's going to be sustainable as a policy. I don't know how long that we, we can continue with that. Um, meaning that at some point, what, what do we do when Assad says, I want, I want that land back? And the Russians say, Assad is the sovereign of Syria. Syria is a country that is recognized by the international community. We've kicked out the terrorists. Now now it's, you know, we, we need to have some framework in place. Some Okay, I, I hit on more of that I know yesterday, but just to recap some of it. But what if the Russians, to send a message, uh, drop a bomb and, and it kills a bunch of the militia that our, our troops are working with? And what if it's really close to our troops? God forbid, what if it actually hits any of our military assets? any of our military personnel, our soldiers. Um, what's the response? And you can see that now things uh, are aligned in such a way that a dramatic escalation, even based on an initial miscalculation, is very real. And the Russians um, see this as sending a message for all of the other conflicts they're involved in as well, right? So if if let's say a Russian pl a Russian plane gets too close to um, the U.S. military on the ground, or it's believed that it's threatening U.S. aircraft, and we shoot one down, uh, do we really think the Russians will not retaliate in some way? They may do it in a way that it's not uh, oh n not obvious that it comes from the Russians, but we would perhaps know, which would seem to be a very Russian approach to this. Uh, and that will be a, a real test of the administration. But it's not clear to me, at least, wh what we're willing to do and not do in Syria, other than, yes, we'll defend our forces. Okay. But to what extent will we go to defend the Kurdish militia on the ground that we're working with? Would we shoot down? I mean, this is the question you really have to ask. Would we shoot down a Russian uh, warplane that was... Uh, en route to what we believe drop a uh, drop a bomb, for example, on a position held by Kurdish militia that we are working with against the Islamic State. Will we shoot down that Russian plane? Uh, that that gets that gets scary pretty quickly, I think. Now, I don't think the Russians would respond by 
you know, saying they're going to like march on New York City or something, obviously, but it would cause a major diplomatic incident and it would raise tensions in all the different places where we have uh, where we have interests that conflict with the Russians. And there's plenty of them. This brings me now to the Baltics, where currently there's a major NATO operation uh, underway. And he, here's the concern with with the Baltics, I think. If the Russians can create a pretext to cut off one or all of the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, if the Russians can create a pretext, which, by the way, are in, in polls you see of countries around the world, those are like some of the most pro-American countries uh, that there are, at least they have been tradition- historically. They're like at Albania in the late 90s level pro-American, uh, where they're just like, America is number one, we love America. Uh, but those countries... If the Russians created some pretext, let's say that there was a, an, an emergency of, you know, I don't know, a terrorist attack against Russian speakers in uh, or a hostage situation involving Russian because there's a Russian speaking minority uh, specifically in in Latvia. I mean, in, the, in all these countries, but, you know, in Latvia um, and they were to rush in. <laughs> sorry, they were to rush in, but they were to move in quickly and say that they were assisting that Russian-speaking minority in Latvia for humanitarian purposes. And they said it was, a, you know, similar to what we've seen in Ukraine, where they've gotten away with a lot of this, by the way. Would we, our response, of course, diplomatically would be very severe, and we would say we would, you know, this will not stand. But if they raise the cost of real action such that it's high enough that we don't want to do it, but their aggression is not so blatant, that it requires a massive NATO Article 5 counterstrike. Do you think the Russians could could get away with it? Meaning you think they could have a de facto stealth occupation of, I don't know, part of a Baltic state? And if they did it quickly enough and bloodlessly enough and made, made it obvious to us that any military response to them would uh, be met with a much stronger military response, right? So they, they promised that there'd be a rapid escalation. Um, you know, would they then be able to do what they've done in other places, in, uh, you know, in, in Ossetia, in Ukraine, in Crimea, where they've, they have violated international norms. They have engaged in cross-border international aggression with only diplomatic and economic consequences, but really no military consequences to speak of, except from maybe the state that's been violated, but those have been uh, not particularly major for Russia, obviously. So, you know, another way to think of this is, you know, if somebody walks down the street, let's say you're wearing a baseball cap, someone's walking down the street and some guy grabs your, grabs your hat off your head, obviously that's aggression, but he says, look, look, I, I just want the hat, uh, but... You know, uh, we can walk away now or you can you can try to, you know, you can try to fight me for it. But is it really worth it for a hat? Now, some of you might say, you're darn right, Buck. That guy's going to get a, you know, we're going to go fisticuffs, pugilists. We're going to go after we go after him. Um, but, you know, you might say, yeah, hey, it's like a five dollar hat. I fine. You know, I'm, I'm going to let him get away with it. Right. Because the cost of the response is too high based on the initial incursion. Now, I know some people would say, well, Buck, any any violation of NATO Article 5 means that NATO's got to jump in action. Yeah, but it's never that obvious. You know, the Russians are not going to roll in with the Russian Federation flag all over everything and a bunch of big tanks and say, you know, and 
and be mowing down Latvians in the street and everything. You know, this isn't the old Soviet Union. They're not going to do that. But could they send in some combat force that's, uh, or, or could there be a combat force in Latvia that's claiming there's a breakaway republic? And it, it, effectively, the, U- the Eastern Ukraine playbook in a Baltic state that would complicate matters very quickly. Yeah, I think that's real. And I think the Baltic states are worried about that. That's why we have, you know, ongoing military operations and training and everything else. That's why we're flying planes, you know, in each other's airspace, getting real. Those planes are getting snugly with each other. A little too snug. Dangerous today, what the Russians did. What the Russians did. Five feet of it, within five feet of a U.S. plane. So, reason to be concerned here. Uh, not reason to panic, but... Because uh, I think there's a, the, the panic button with Russia is just, it's, that's becoming a knee-jerk response, right? Anytime anything comes up with Russia, oh, my gosh. Oh, wait, by the way, we've got Karen Handel at 51% to John Ossoff's 48% with, okay, less than 1% of the precinct, very little. Just give you a little update here on the race. Uh, 51 to 48 with less than 1% reporting. So uh, that doesn't really make a... Uh, make much of a difference, I think. Wait, no, that can't be less. That can't be less than 1%, is it? Well, anyway, tight race in the 6th District. Uh, 6th district. Uh, team, we've got more. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Media is nasty. I don't. I don't have to... Uh, tell you that you already know that, but it is worth, I think, just adding more evidence to the pile when we have it. The the left uh, leftist website Salon Salon dot com, which just piles digital crap upon digital crap and calls it a masterpiece on a daily basis. Uh, they criticized. Well, that's that's not even the right way to say it. They mocked. Uh, they ridiculed. Uh, Otto uh, Warmbier, who, as we know now, is dead. I told this to you yesterday when the news broke. Returned uh, from North Korea after clearly being tortured and and, uh, who knows the uh, terrors, the horrors that he was put through by that just vile and vindictive and depraved regime. Um, But Warmbier was returned and, and then died despite all of the efforts of the uh, medical community in this country to try to save him. And you had Salon.com, while Warmbier was in custody, writing, quote, this might be America's biggest idiot frat boy. Meet the UVA student who thought he could pull a prank in North Korea. Now, when they wrote that, they didn't know that Warmbier was going to come back, essentially be handed back dead to his family and to America. As a U.S. citizen, this is one of ours. Uh, but they knew that he was in custody of a uh, homicidal, maniacal, and evil regime. And they, and, but because he's white and, and male and went to UVA, he's a, quote, idiot frat boy. I mean, what a bunch of just gutless little quizzling cowards over at Salon and all these places. You know, they, they just, they're so brave behind their little keyboards uh, but you you see a a nasty streak that is widespread in these uh, leftist media outlets that it just can't be explained by anything other than there, there's something really uh, emotionally driven and childish and um, 
I, I dare I say, unchristian about progressive media outlets. There, there's some, and you know, I know some of them say, "Oh, Buck, but what about you know, what about all those Marxist Catholics running around?" Yeah, I know. Trust me, as a born and raised Catholic, uh, it's a discussion we could have another time. Uh, but the left is is there's a nastiness, uh, and you know, Larry Wilmore, the unfunny comedian on the com- on the Comedy Central, one of many unfunny comedians on Comedy Central. Have you noticed how many unfunny comedians there are that are still paid a lot of money and given big platforms? But, you know, they're really just political pundits. They're just political pundits who don't know very much. That's what Wilmore and uh, John Stewart and, you know, you go down the list, uh, you know, John Oliver. They're, they're people that just make uh, dirty jokes for political propaganda. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. So there's this huge company called Uber that uh, some of you, I'm sure, use yourselves. I'm, I'm guessing most, if not all of you, are, qu- are quite familiar with it, and uh, it has a massive uh, valuation. It, it's worth uh, worth many, many, many billions of dollars. And it is trying to change, really, the future of transportation. Now, just on a, on a technology and jobs front, I think it's going to be uh, fascinating to watch uh, what happens. The same forces that are uh, really uh, making retail a job that right now is 10% of the workforce that's going to be getting smaller and smaller all the time. Um, and I think also those who work in the grocery side of, uh, of commerce are going to be seeing those jobs dwindle as Amazon took out Whole Foods or acquired, I should say, Whole Foods. And um, this technology is changing all this very rapidly. And there are many jobs that exist today that will not exist in the future. Uh, you think about all the, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the country that make a living driving people and uh, driving people and goods in one way or another. Uh, and if that all becomes automated and uses technology, driverless technology, uh, people are going to have to find jobs doing something else. I know people say, oh, well, they'll move into the you know, healthcare industry or they'll move into something else. Not entirely clear what that will be just yet. And um, this is not a, a, an evolution in a business model. This is a dramatic change. But So Uber has big plans for the future. And there are others out there, too. And it's, it's trying to partner up with uh, major companies, including auto manufacturers, uh, because it is it is reliant, it will be reliant increasingly on these outside partnerships. But Uber's got a problem. Uh, Uber has now acquired a reputation for being a company that is uh, sexist, right? There is a rampant, there are accusations of, of rampant sexism at Uber. And the most recently, the the case that's gotten some attention here is just an example of how you know now we all, we you just one little comment one little comment and you're in a world of trouble doesn't matter who you are anymore uh if you're if you're a white male you're in a lot of trouble uh and this 
This is from um, the uh, Wall Street Journal from, uh, what was this, just uh, a few days ago. David Bonderman, who is a billionaire investor, uh, this guy has a, has a storied career on Wall Street. He was at a, uh, gosh, he was at a meeting of Uber's board, um, and he has had to resign from the board. He had to, he lost his lost his board seat. Uh, he was in a meeting of Uber's board um, to discuss the. Now look, I get it. He, he's there to discuss the company's culture of sexism, and decided to make an, an, an ill advised an ill advised remark. Ah, this guy, um, you know. He just, I, I can imagine, he, as soon as he said it, he probably realized that was not smart. He's resigned from the board because he has said that his uh, comments were, uh, well, careless, inappropriate, and inexcusable. So he was sitting on this board, and Ariana Huffington, Darling, I sit on many boards. I get paid so much money to sit around and tell people about wellness and health and beating stress. She's... This I, I don't know what she's good at particularly other than just being in the right place at the right time and a lot of self-promotion and self and, and, and branding. I don't know. Um, not someone I would listen to for political analysis or economic analysis or anything else on on any issue. Um, but and and the stories about her that I've I've read about and also heard from people I know at The Huffington Post about her imperiousness. And just completely, you know, let let everybody just part like the 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 sea for me when I come, and I want nobody to look at me like they're unhappy because I want everybody to be very smiley because I am the CEO. Uh, she is, yeah, just walking around. She moved people in the office so that they would be sitting along after they had layoffs at Huffington Post when she was there she moved people so that there were more people on her route to her office that she would show up to you know whatever because she didn't like that there were empty chairs because of the firings right i mean so i mean th- these are the kind of things that they deal with i mean the stories about um you know around the huffington and how this massive website gets built up and it still was somehow supposed to be about her even though it was a news website, but it was always somehow also supposed to be about her. And and you couldn't uh, criticize friends of Ariana on the site. That was also a thing that would come up. So no no journalistic integrity. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but she's on the board to clean up their culture. Um, this, uh, this leftist progressive uh, socialite is on the board. And I, look, I know she's been very successful. I, I can't I can't dispute that. Certainly got a lot more, a lot more cash in the bank than old Mister Sexton over here does. Uh, a lot more. Uh, <laughs> it makes me sad on the inside. But uh, she, she's sitting there in this meeting with this private equity guy, um, and she said, "Quote: When there's one woman on the board, it's much more likely there'll be a second woman on the board." And this guy, Bonderman, jumped in and said, quote, actually what it shows is that it's much more likely to be more talking. <sighs> so he 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 stepped he stepped in it here. Uh, now, of course, everyone's saying, see, even at the board level, there's all of this sexism. And as as I think we could all I mean, as sexist comments go, this was a pretty 
Um, th- this was on the milder end, uh, but given that Uber has had, there's allegations of you know senior management propositioning younger employees during company time on company, uh, you know, hardware, you know, on their computers. I mean, it just they, they, they got problems, right? You you had the uh, president just resign. But you're getting these stories out there. So anyway, yeah, this the president of Uber resigned uh, after just six months on the job. Uh, that just happened. Uh, in, well, that that happened in March. Pardon me. So the president resigned in March after six months on the job. So there's been all this problem with morale and the sexual harassment allegations. So they bring in Ariana Huffington to fix it. And I just want to be like, so what is that? What is her expertise here? So you bring in an area having to have a prominent female that's on your board that's going to change the culture at at Uber. I mean, from what I understand, the the culture at the Huffington Post became everybody was disposable except Ariana Huffington. That that's what the culture is going to be. See, that's the reality of what it was. What they're going to tell you is, oh, you know, they had nap. I saw them. I I, I was over at Huffington Post a few times. They had the nap rooms and uh, you know yoga studio, whatever. I mean, that that was not the reality over there. It was Ariana's world, and everybody else was living in it. And, you know, she was uh, the the solipsism of this woman, uh, meaning the sun revolves around her. The solipsism of Ariana Huffington was astonishing, from what I am told by first-person accounts. But she gets brought in because a major company that could be changing the future of transportation, there's allegations of sexism. So you bring in Ariana Huffington because she's going to fix it. I mean, I just, you know. And then this guy who actually has real expertise in private equity and might be useful for Uber says something dumb and he has to resign. This is just the this is the corporate world we live in these days, my friends. Political correctness, first and foremost and always. It's just the way that it is. We're going to hit a quick break, team. We'll be right back. Stay with me. All right, everybody, welcome back. We got our friend David Harsanyi on the line. He is senior editor at The Federalist and a nationally syndicated columnist. His latest, Republicans aren't sabotaging Obamacare. It's failing on its own. Mr. Harsanyi, do please explain. (laughs) Well, I've noticed that recently over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of uh, talk about how the GOP is, and in particular, Donald Trump is sabotaging uh, Obamacare, and uh, you know, it's sort of picked up. You know, these things work in concert. So all of a sudden, everyone's using the word, and everyone's going with this idea. And it, in essence, what they're saying is that uh, the Republicans, because of uncertainty with their bill and with the way they're treating Obamacare, have sort of undermined the exchanges in the states and chased away insurers and so on. I, I think that's not the case. I think that there's plenty of evidence that this was going on without any help from the Republicans. And when Republicans are confronted with these facts, though, David, they don't seem to be making a very good public case for why it is that they should be acting on Obamacare. And I think it's in part because they're not sure how they want to deal with Obamacare. They, they, all the Republicans seem to be on the same sheet of music about is Obamacare bad, but why is it bad? How do we fix it? They don't seem as clear on that. Right. So there's two things here. Uh, you know, the, in uh, I think two years ago or maybe it was 2016, the House sued over cost sharing uh, reductions, which are like, um, you know, 
uh, basically subsidies to the insurance companies and these exchanges. And because Obamacare never had the spending mechanism in the bill, so they just simply gave money. So the House won, and it's illegal, right? So, uh, you know, Congress has every right not to give these subsidies, and they could destroy Obamacare tomorrow, all the exchanges if they felt like it, which they don't want to do, because Republicans have never made a good argument against Obamacare other than Obamacare stinking, right? Obamacare stinks, but they have never really come up with a coherent plan that they could sell to Americans. So that there are two things here. One is Obamacare is dying anywhere, but yet Republicans don't seem to have any kind of inkling as to what to do about it. And I'm nervous that in their little secret bill that's going on right now, they're essentially going to save the infrastructure of Obamacare rather than destroy the whole thing and start from scratch, which I think is almost almost the worst outcome in many ways when we can let it die and do something better. What do you think about the secrecy right now with the Senate version of the Obamacare bill? The Senate Republicans aren't talking a lot about what's going to be different, what they're changing, and this has become a a common talking point for Democrats, and I know that's been the justification that they've put forward for why they're trying to slow down Senate business and just make things more complicated uh, in general for all Senate processes because they're saying there's not transparency here. Um, But why why aren't there members of the Senate Uh, Why aren't there Republican members of the Senate who are standing forward and saying, look, we've seen the House bill. Here's what we're trying to do right now. That would be good. I I just what are we paying these guys to do? (laughs) I'm of two minds here. If they were constructing a bill that I thought was really going to be a great um, repeal bill that was going to be wonderful, I'd be for it simply because. The way that the Democrats passed Obamacare, I'm willing to give Republicans leeway in their own efforts to repeal what Democrats did, which was a bunch of trickery, a bunch of fake uh, transparency, uh, you know, and fake hearings that completely discounted one of the political parties and created this great havoc that I think we're still dealing with. So I would be open to that. I understand why they're doing it. They're doing it because they saw what happened to the House. Every idea that leaks out, every there's no safe space when you're talking about this, right? So every idea that you throw out there, Democrats are going to jump on it. They're going to say, come up with some, you know, report that says it's going to kill X many, you know, 10 million children, whatever it is. uh, And they don't want to deal with any of that. Problem for me here is that I just sense that it's not good. If it's more liberal and more watered down than the House bill, then it's just going to be something terrible anyway. So for me, that's the bigger problem if I'm a conservative. I think also because so much of Obamacare's coverage expansion has to do with Medicaid instead of the broader insurance market and because it's all it's it's individual it's it's people buying individual plans and, and medicaid expansions it doesn't affect uh much it has not had the same impact on on employer provided plans uh although it has had effects on it it's just they're they're more hidden from public view i think that's why democrats are able to still be favorably disposed towards this because everyone that i know including uh r- real leftist progressives who in a moment of person-to-person honesty uh, will share their thoughts on, on Obamacare, agrees that Obamacare plans, for the most part, are, are pretty terrible. I mean, if you get a, a, a disease that would have bankrupted you and you just so happen to have had an Obamacare plan, maybe you think Obamacare is a good thing. But that's a tiny percentage of people. There are ways to, to help those people without putting everybody else on Obamacare. And overall, Obamacare plans, from the people I know who are on them, are just bad. They're really expensive and they're crappy. Well, because there's no real competition in those individual markets. I mean, in I forgot how many counties now. There's essentially, you know, a monopoly. There's one 
one company, you know, so and, and because of all the rules and all the regulations, there's no real competition. And obviously, this is a complicated problem. It's not wouldn't be easy to fix anyway. But when Obamacare passed, they did not focus in the you know, they, they talked about expanding coverage, obviously, to the people who didn't have it, but it was supposed to be about a lot of other things. And now what is it about? It's about that. It's about taking away welfare from from people. So I would be much happier if they said, listen, we're going to provide some sort of help and welfare program for this, you know, people who can't afford it. But for everyone else, we're going to create a more vibrant free market system to let them have the kind of plans they want. But Republicans are very scared um, because whenever you take insurance away from one person, obviously it's a political liability. And, you know, and they don't have the they don't have the guts to deal with it. And frankly, they don't have a president who really is for the kind of free market plan, at least that I would like to see them and the kind of plan they were talking about. I mean, let's be honest here. They have majorities in both houses and they have the presidency probably in large part due to Obamacare. It was their biggest issue. And yet now what you know, what are they doing? They're not even talking about it. We're speaking to David Harsanyi. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. You want to check out his latest at thefederalist.com. He's also a nationally syndicated columnist, everyone. Uh, David, the Congressional 6th District, the results are coming in tonight. Uh, we won't know for a little while what those results uh, are, but they, they, they close the polls at 7 p.m. What do you think about Mr. Ossoff and all the national attention on that? This is the third time there's been a, actually there's another special election that no one's paying attention to because the Republicans definitely going to win. But this is the third one where they've said, oh, it's going to be close. It's because of Trump. It's because of the Trump effect. And, you know, it's negative. What do you think? Well, if Ossoff loses, it'll be because of the candidate or the rain or something. And it'll be a, it'll be done. And then if if he wins, it'll be everything that tell, it'll tell us everything we need to know about the country, the presidency. It'll be a repudiation of the entirety of the Republican Party for all of its existence, I think. That's right. That's how it works. So it all depends. Um, obviously, it's going to be close. And I think what I love is even if they lose, actually, it'll even if Democrats lose, it'll be like it was much closer than expected. This is, shows a trend, a trajectory, so forth and so on. I, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I just I think that we put way too much importance into these things. And uh, I don't think special elections, at least from what I've read, seem that important. So I think we should treat them as the House election that they are, and there's many of them to come. So I always think it's funny that people people hate Congress but like their congressmen. I would think that familiarity would breed contempt there, right? Like if, <laughs> if you're somebody who has a really low view of Congress in general – Shouldn't you probably realize that, the you know, whoever your congressman is, is just trying to do whatever he has to do to make you and your congressional district feel like he's not one of the bad guys or gals, but he probably is. I, I'm happy you brought that up. I've written about this often, and I wrote about it. I've been writing about it for years. Congress is one of the most popular places on earth. Everyone, you know, when you look at the favorability rating of the institution, yeah, it's always low, or it's been low for years. Everyone hates everyone else's congressperson, but they don't hate their own congressman. They vote for that person year in and year out every two years. There's such little turnover. So this idea that Congress is unpopular makes people, you know, on Twitter feel good. But it's just it's kind of a myth. It's not that important. Just as, for instance, favorability ratings of the president aren't that important. I mean, they mean something. But what matters is the choice. At some point, there's a choice. And who do you hate or love more? And that's what matters. So, you know. Uh, and indeed, I do. <laughs> David Arsani. Over, 
David Arsani, everybody, senior editor at The Federalist. David, always great to have you, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, team 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. If you would like to uh, light up our lines, please do. Uh, we are going to be rolling into a quick break. We'll be coming back with much more. Stay with me. It came on the heels of an attack in London on Muslim worshippers outside a mosque. It was a brutal murder of a young Muslim woman in Virginia. And all of the initial uh, media coverage of it suggested that this had to be, this must be a hate crime. And that was the initial assessment. That was how it was that was how it was positioned on ABC News, a hate crime question mark. All they had to go on at the time was that a young Muslim girl uh, had disappeared and then was found murdered. And the assumption the media ran with was that this had to be an anti-Muslim act of bigotry. And that was where all the initial coverage uh, was pointing. We have since found out more. And the case is chilling. Uh, it is a, a brutal murder. But the uh, alleged perpetrator was not engaged in a hate crime. He was just engaged in an act of evil violence. And what the media doesn't particularly want to focus on as they uh, cover this story is that initially... Uh, when it was thought of as a hate crime, they were going to, I'm sure, uh, plaster the name and background of the perpetrator all over every broadcast and newspaper in the country because it fits a narrative, anti-Muslim bias. Remember, this happened just after this murder occurred, just after the uh, vehicle attack by a deranged moron in London running over uh, Muslims outside of a mosque. So they were positioned for this to be a follow-on bigotry, hate attack to that. And the media was all ready to go with it. They were asking question marks, could this be a hate crime? It turns out that the police have made it very clear that this was, in fact, an act of road rage turned in to murder. And the perpetrator uh, who killed this, this young girl was, in fact... An illegal alien living in this country, working in construction, 22 years old. The uh, perpetrator is Darwin Martinez Torres. He is from Sterling, Virginia. He, according to police, got into an argument with some uh, teenagers who were walking and some were biking. And he, uh, I, I suppose, wanted them to pull over or get out of the way, and they didn't. And so he ran his car up onto the curb and scattered the group and then followed them. And there was a group of about 15 teens, and he tracked one of them down, the one that he was able to get his hands on, uh, tragically, was Nabra uh, or Hassanin. And uh, he had a baseball bat, and he beat this young girl uh, to death with a bat. And he beat her to death and then moved the body and tried to hide it in a pond. So this is a, a, a brutal 
evil act of violence. Um, they're saying that it's road rage now. And in fact, I see the New York Times writes, road rage is cited in killing of a Muslim girl in Virginia. What I find so interesting uh, from the media angle, and look, this is just a story. This is a, a murder story. Uh, if there's a political angle to it, it's not hate crime, which the media was prepared for and in fact pushing as an angle before the facts were in. It's why is an uh, a violent 22-year-old illegal alien in a position to bludgeon a young girl, Muslim or otherwise, doesn't matter, uh, bludgeon a young girl to death with a baseball bat in the first place. If we're going to have a political takeaway from this, if there's something that we should know beyond just the basic facts of the case, it's why was an illegal in a position to commit such a horrific act? You're going to tell me that there was no opportunity, there was no uh, meaningful chance for the state to take this obviously violent individual and uh, deport him from the country? I mean, I'm wondering what his criminal record, if anything, is. Uh, Still waiting to see if there's more. Um, But it's not being investigated as a hate crime, which means there will be far less less coverage of it. Um, They are calling it road rage. Uh, But on to the way that they describe this, by the way, the the politics of how the news media writes about a murder. Because remember, initially it was murder of Muslim girl. Was it a hate crime, question mark? No, it turns out it wasn't. It was just an angry illegal from El Salvador who beat a girl. He caught a girl and beat her to death with a baseball bat. She didn't do anything at all. He just wanted to kill somebody because there was some exchange of words with a group of people she was with on the street. Uh, This isn't really even road rage. It's just rage. It's just rage that Darwin Martinez Torres uh, acted upon in this horrific and barbaric fashion and and killed Nabra Hassanin for absolutely no reason whatsoever and then tried to hide the body. I mean, this is real sociopathic, if not psychopathic, stuff from this El Salvadoran illegal. Um, but I should note that the way that they write about this, uh, and I, here's an NBC News headline, uh, man charged with murder of Muslim teen who disappeared on way to mosque. Just man, huh? Just man. You'll, you'll see a lot of that. Not El Salvadoran illegal alien bludgeons Muslim girl to death, which is a more descriptive and more accurate headline. No, it's just man. Not even illegal alien bludgeons Muslim girl to death. They specify the victim because the victim in this case falls into a special victim class, that is a Muslim, uh, but they will not specify the perpetrator. And in fact, many of the news reports seem to go to some considerable length to avoid giving any details about the perpetrator's background or anything else, uh, anything else about it. Um, they just give his name, and it's usually buried some paragraphs down. Darwin Martinez Torres. Uh, they also, um, in the New York Times version of this reporting, write the following. While the incident has yet to be labeled a hate crime, right now in America, black Muslim women, especially those from marginalized communities, are continuously targeted and attacked with malicious intent. Um the organizers Women's Initiative for Empowerment wrote on Facebook, 
this murder is yet another wake-up call in the chain of events of Muslim women viciously attacked and hate crimes across the country. So the New York Times cites this uh, activist group, Women's Initiative for Self-Empowerment, I guess. I had never heard of it before. Uh, in order to talk about hate crimes against Muslims, even though this isn't a hate crime against a Muslim, there's no evidence whatsoever this was a biased crime based on anything that the police have seen yet. And if it was a biased crime, it would be a Central American Latino uh, beating to death a Muslim girl, a Muslim teenager. So, again, this doesn't fall into a narrative that most of the media wants to spend much time on. Um, But the New York Times goes even further. The FBI reported last year that attacks against American Muslims had surged in 2015, driving an overall increase in hate crimes against all groups. There were 257 reports of, of assaults, attacks on mosques, and other hate crimes against Muslims in 2015, a jump of about 67% over 2014. Okay, this is in reporting about the Nabra Hassanin murder, which police have said is not a hate crime. So why are the Times and the Washington Post, why are they citing activist groups about hate crimes? Why am I reading statistics about anti-Muslim hate crimes. They just want to talk about this. It's obvious that they want to, quote, raise awareness, even though it has nothing to do with the subject at hand. There is no reason to believe right now whatsoever, based on the facts, that Nabra Hassanin was murdered by Darwin Martinez Torres, allegedly, not yet proven in a court of law, um, because of anything other than the fact that he was a rageful maniac. Um, And... And if we're, we're going to be forced to read statistics about anti-Muslim bias crimes, let's just delve into them for a second, shall we? The FBI reported in 2015, this is supposed to be a shocking increase, 200, 257 reports of assaults, attacks on mosques, and other hate crimes altogether in 2015. 257 attacks on mosques? So, I mean, that includes graffiti, right? That includes somebody who leaves bacon on the step of a mosque and thinks that's funny. Uh, 257. Assaults, that includes verbal assault. We are a country of 320 million people. There were about 250 total anti-Muslim bias crimes, including... uh, These are just reports. Not even necessarily... And as we know, there are fake reports that are sometimes that are sometimes filed, um, and you can just read about them in the news media. You know, a woman says that she was attacked by Trump supporters in the subway in New York. Turned out to be a total lie. Um, So let's say it's 250. Let's say maybe the real number of actual assaults is more like 200. There are 30,000 assaults approximately in New York City alone every year. There are 200 bias crimes. Remember, not murders, not vicious violent attacks, just bias crimes of any kind against the Muslim community in America, and the New York Times thinks they need to raise awareness about this? I mean, there's no excuse for being mean to somebody because of their religion or their appearance ever. And I think it's terrible, and I would call it out, and I would defend any member of any marginalized or minority community if it was ever done in front of me. Or, But let's not overstate the problem, my friends. 250. 320 million people in the country, 250 reports of assaults. I mean, that is... America should give itself an award for tolerance when it comes to the Islamic community. That's the truth. That's the truth. 
And we are never allowed to say that out loud. You know, we're always told about Islamophobia and, the, you know, all the Islamophobia that's out there now. What are we going to do about it? And here you just have an illegal alien. I mean, the story here really is illegal aliens that are able to murder people that shouldn't be in the country in the first place. It's not a hate crime story. They're saying it's a road rage story because it doesn't fit their narrative. And then they want to talk about hate crimes anyway. I mean, the media agenda is just so obvious. All right, we'll take a quick break here, team. We'll be right back. I wanted to follow up. I think this is this is great stuff. So I told you yesterday about the uh, Matal v. Tam Supreme Court decision. Now, this was a rock band called that of, of Asian Americans. They called themselves the Slants, which is a common slur for Asian Americans, and they're trying to uh, uh, take that term back to take away its uh, destructive, uh, disparaging power and 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 sort of reown. Uh, the term for themselves, uh, and eight O Supreme Court said, "Sorry, uh, you can't you can't make determinations. The government can't make determinations based on what's offensive." Um, and this is a, a an important win for free speech. As I said, it doesn't change everything, but at least now there are other cases I think that will be influenced by this. And hate speech is not something that is outside the protection of the First Amendment. I think that's. That's pretty clear. Just because something is offensive, it does not make it not protected speech. Um, And this was a a worthwhile reminder, I think, for the progressive left at this point in time. Uh, But there were two amazing uh, responses to it from the the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, The first one, I have to say, is that the New York Times uh, wrote the following... um, uh, the decision is likely to help the Washington Redskins, who lost their trademark protections in 2014 after years of complaints from Native American groups. At the time, this page supported the trademark office's decision, and we still regard the Redskins' name as offensive. Based on this case, however, we've since reconsidered our underlying position. Okay, this is the New York Times, uh, in a pretty straightforward fashion, saying, oh, yeah, you know, the First Amendment does mean that there can be offensive stuff, too. This is the New York Times. I I, I mean, they don't even understand the First Amendment. Isn't that that astonishing? Shouldn't we just take a moment and say, wow, they were in favor. Remember, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, they all went with the conservatives on the court. This was 8-0. This wasn't even close. You, you, you can't get anybody to say that offensive speech is not protected under the First Amendment and that the government can make distinctions about offensive speech and the protections that it affords its citizens. Uh, you, you, I mean, if you can't get Sotomayor to sign on for this, you can't get anybody to sign on for this from the left, right? I mean, or, or Ginsburg. And I just think we should take note of the fact that the, that the New York Times really doesn't believe in the First Amendment. And this was some kind of reminder. And I'm like, oh, yeah, totes. We changed our position on that one. My bad. You know, stuff happens, whatever. Yeah, I guess stuff does happen, New York Times. So that's that's interesting to me, to be sure, that it's, it's a reminder that the New York Times uh, is not, in fact, 
about freedom or free speech, even when it, I mean they they won't even really defend the First Amendment. Uh, they only do they only defend it when they like it. But the best of all is the Washington Post will write about the Slants, the name of this band in this case, but is unwilling to write the Redskins. Quote, this is from the bottom of the Washington Post editorial in response to, again, the Supreme Court case yesterday, 8-0, Matal v. Tam. Quote, this is strong medicine, both in terms of the support it offers free speech and in terms of what it requires of those who do take offense at expressions likely to enjoy court protection as a result of this opinion. Specifically, the Washington football team's name, which was also the subject of a suit against its trademark. The answer, in our view, is to redouble all lawful efforts to get that name changed, even if a federal lawsuit probably can't be one of them. As the court's decision reminds us, constitutional and decent are not the same thing. They will not write Redskins, but the Washington Post will write Slants, which is the name of this band, which now we can all say because we understand the First Amendment. They're allowed to have it federally protected. It's the name of the band. That's what they chose. But they won't write Redskins. They won't write it. The, the Washington football team name, also the subject of a suit. I mean, they clearly left it out on purpose. So even when writing about the First Amendment, the Washington Post is unwilling to express its own uh, usage of the First Amendment freely. You can't make this stuff up, everybody. I mean, these are the two biggest newspapers in the country. Tons of money behind them. They don't even stand. They don't even stand for freedom of the press. Really, it says a lot, doesn't it? All right, team. As always, uh, great honor and pleasure to have you with me in the Freedom Hut. Please do uh, download the podcast. Our podcast numbers have been great uh, each month, going up and up, and I really appreciate that. That only happens because of you. Please share the podcast with a friend. You can go on Facebook.com/slash Buck Sexton. We post there. Also, BuckSexton.com for all of your Freedom Hut needs. Uh, And on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America. Now you can click subscribe. Even if you're a a live listener, wherever you are across the country, please do subscribe in case you missed a show one day and you want to catch up on it. And uh, I very much appreciate that. All right, team. um, We've got a lot more show coming for you later on this week. Uh, Let me know your thoughts on Facebook when you get a chance. And until then, Shield Talk.